today is from Colossians chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and, pace, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to him all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his, cro of his cross. This is the word of God. Thank you, Ashley. Let's say a word of prayer before we think about what this scripture means. Dear Father, we're grateful to be able to gather here this morning for this mom these moments of worship. Some of us may have walked with you for many years, and others of us may simply be exploring Christianity, but we're here today, and we're going to take a look at your word and what it means. And we're thinking about this brand new church family. What's it all about? What are we here for? What are we trying to accomplish? Why would I want to be a part of this? Father, I pray that you would open our hearts today to your word and to what it might mean for us today. And I want to commit this time to you and ask that you would accomplish through it what you wish to accomplish. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you know me at all, you know that Donna and I have been married a lot of years. We met in high school. Uh, we, we went together until we were 20, got married when we were 20, and we have enjoyed having three children together, a, a daughter and two sons. Our children's names are Cayenne, Kyle, and Kurt. Now, all three of those names have something in common with one another. They're, they all begin with the letter K. Yes, we spell Kurt with a K, and that's the reason why. Uh, they all have four letters. Uh, two of them are even halfway spelled the same, K-Y-A-N and K-Y-L-E. And then, of course, Kurt has three separate letters. Um, we've loved having children with, uh, with the similar last names, and we've loved the names that we've given them. We no one ever questioned us when we named our two boys Kyle and Kurt. That's a pretty common name for a boy. Um, but there were questions, I have to say, going back 27 years ago now, when our daughter was born and we gave her the name Cayenne. I remember when I first called uh, my father-in-law, you know, the, the father of the mother of this new baby, and told him we had a healthy baby and a healthy mama, and, and we named her, and her name is Cayenne. He said, what? And I said, Cayenne, you know, K-Y-A-N, you know, like, like Diane. What kind of name is that, he said. You know, so, so we were a little bit unsure. And I have to say, we were fairly unsure 
even while we were during the time of pregnancy, we were pretty old-fashioned about the way we approached all this. We, we, didn't want, we didn't want to know the gender of our baby. We wanted to be surprised. We didn't go around telling people what our potential names are, were. We, we were pretty private about that, and one of the reasons was because we just didn't really know. In truth, we knew we kind of liked the name Cayenne, but we knew it was an unusual name, and we also liked the name Kurt, uh, Kyle. So if we had a boy, we pretty sure we would have named him Kyle. And a girl, we thought, well, maybe Cayenne, but wouldn't it be kind of weird to name your firstborn the strange name? You know, Cayenne. And so we just weren't really sure. We had other names in mind. And, uh, and I remember that uh, delivery. I'm so grateful that I grew up in a time period when dads were able to be present during the delivery of their children. And I was there, and it was one of the most emotional and poignant moments of my life. Can any of you relate to that, having a child? Yeah, not to my child, but to your children, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, not mine, I know, but to your children. It's just there's something holy, something sober and joyful. It's like a moment too large for human experience. It's just, it's a kairos moment, you know. It's not a chronos moment, chronological time, but it's a, it's a poignant moment. It's a fully formed time. And uh, it was just a powerful moment. And uh, while Donna was having her, uh, during her delivery time, they kept asking her, do you want some medicine? Do you want some medicine? No, no, I'm fine. No, no, I'm fine. And after we kept going in, they finally looked at me and said, Steve, do you want some medicine? I was just, so, I was so worked up over this. And I said, no, I think I'll make it. So thanks for, you know, oh, it was just such a great experience. And I remember, and my mom, who's here today, was there as well, so the three of us were able to enjoy that moment together. And I remember when this little six-pound, four-ounce baby was born, and they took her, and, and uh, they let me cut the umbilical cord, and they placed the baby up on I shouldn't tell these stories. I get emotional just telling them. Placed the baby up on her chest, and, and, uh, and she looked at me and said, Cayenne? <laughs> I said, Cayenne. That's who she was. It didn't matter what anybody else thought. That was her. She was not going to be anybody else. And boy, that's a powerful memory. My tears, I said, we have never regretted giving her that rather unusual name. Um, I've asked her since, you know, how do you feel about having a rather unusual name? She says, well, it's kind of annoying to have to repeat my name all the time twice or so. In fact, we got so used to repeating her name when she was a very little child, we would say her name is Cayenne, like Diane with a K. That was we, typically, we just meet you, we said, she's a, you know, a six-month-old baby. What's her name? Her name's Cayenne, like Diane with a K. It came up automatically. Well, she was a very early talker, um, as uh, firstborn children tend to be, not always, but tend to be. And so she was not more than maybe two years old or whatever, or maybe a little over two, when I remember we, we, we saw her, and someone came to her and said, what's your name? And she said, Cayenne, like Diane with a K. <laughs> you know? She had no idea what it meant, but those were the words that she had heard, and she just re repeated them back, back to them. It was one of those beautiful moments that we remember. We've loved that name from the very beginning, and she said, yeah, no one ever forgets my name, and now we couldn't imagine her being anybody else. We liked that name because it was pretty and distinctive and memorable and short. We wanted a short name. And now that I think of it, it kind of is what our daughter became, pretty, memorable, distinct, and I have to say, short, you know, Cayenne, like Diane with a K. You see, what you name something is important. It's a promise and a hope, and it, it identifies who they are. And so with all that as a prelude, we've called our church Ecclesia. Now, you have to have thought, 
what kind, like my father-in-law said, what kind of name is that? What's that mean? Ecclesia. I don't even know how to say it. Do I say Ecclesia, Ecclesia, Ecclesia? I don't know what to say about it. Why would you call the church Ecclesia? Well, to this morning, I'm going to answer that question for you and let you know something about two questions that we're going to ask. One is, why do we call our church Ecclesia? And the second is, what do we mean when we call ourselves a community of faith, love, and hope? So I hope that I can accomplish a number of things in one 25-minute time of talking this morning. I hope I can give you a feel for what this new entity is like, who we see ourselves to be, what this little baby at the breast is meant to become. You give it a name, you want it to become something, and we want our church to become an ecclesia, a community of faith, love, and hope. So that gives you a feel for who we are, but it also has a very poignant and personal application to you, yourself, because if the Christian message is true, God has called every person to be part of His ecclesia, to be part of a community of love, faith, love, and hope, whether it's this local gathering or another. So I hope you will find it helpful. And perhaps you're uh, among those many in our culture who are asking very deep spiritual questions about your life. What am I here for? What am I about? What is the meaning of love, and what do I believe, and what happens? Those fundamental life questions, which are not something which occur purely within Christian circles, but they're human questions that every culture asks and finds answers to. Within the church, there are some scriptural answers to those questions that I hope will be applicable to you and your life so that you can find yourself perhaps, and I hope, responding to God's call to be part of His family. So, with that as a background, let's begin to answer these two questions. First of all, why do we call our church Ecclesia? And there's a place you can jot some of these notes down on the back of those, that information card that I sent you. Well, in order to answer the question, why do we call our church Ecclesia, I need to give you a little background on the development of our English Bible. You know probably that the New Testament was not written in English. The Apostle Paul in the first century didn't write these words in English. They were written in another language. In fact, they were written in the book, in the, in the language of Greek. And our English Bibles are a translation of the Greek language. And so when we read the word church in our English Bible, the real word underneath that is the word ecclesia. It's the word ecclesia. So everywhere, everywhere you see the word church, the original language word is the word ecclesia, ecclesia. And so, when we use that word ecclesia, we're actually borrowing from the original language. And that would maybe seem, well, why are we doing that? Well, I'm going to tell you. The problem is the church is not the right translation of the Greek word ecclesia. The word church comes from the Greek word kyriakon, a word, word which is roughly translated the house of the Lord, kyriakon. In fact, our son's name, Kurt, comes from the old word kirk, which is part of the word church, which comes from the Latin you see? But it ultimately has to do with the house of God, okay? But the word itself, ecclesia, um, is not the word which should be translated church. The word kyriakon is the one, and it refers to a building where people gather for worship. But this is not what ecclesia means in the Bible. The technical meaning of ecclesia is called out ones. People called out. A better translation, in fact, William Tyndale, who was killed at this, burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English, literally, in the early 1500s, 
his way of translating the word ecclesia was to use the word congregation or assembly. Do you see the difference between calling an ecclesia a building versus calling it a, an assembly? One stresses the place where people come to worship. The other stresses the people who come to a place. It's a gathering. And this is a fundamental thing that is important for us to understand. Um, what does ecclesia mean? It was actually, in the Greek language, a term used when the citizens of an area were called from their town to gather as a community and to make decisions on behalf of the people. It was kind of like a town meeting. You know, all the male property owners would come together and be called together to make decisions on behalf of the community. It was not originally a religious term at all. It was rather a political term, having nothing to do with the place people were called to, but rather the reason they were called and the people who were called, the who was being called and the why they were being called. They were called by the government, gathered as representatives of their community, and empowered to implement decisions for the good of everyone. And this word is the word that the early First New Testament writers chose to call that group of gathered followers of Jesus in local communities. They could have called them the synagogue of Christ. That would have been natural, right? They could have called them the temple of Christ. In fact, there's good theological reasons. We are the temple of Christ. They could have even called them the Kyriakon, but they didn't. They chose this non-religious term which spoke about a group of people called out together the ecclesia. Now, you might say, well, why does this matter? Well, it matters for this reason. The writers of the New Testament never spoke of the church as the place where people met, but rather about the fact that they were a people called by an authority, gathered as a community, and sent to effect change. You see the difference? They were a people called by an authority, gathered as a community, and sent to effect change. Unfortunately, by calling the, the ecclesia a church rather than an assembly or a congregation, the translators perpetuated a deep misunderstanding of the nature of the church. I mean, it's why we don't typically have church in public settings like bars and saloons, because we tend to think of those as not the right place for a church. But here we are meeting in a non-religious place. It's a perfect example of what it means to be the ecclesia of God. Now, let me see if I can explain it this way. There are three common ways of thinking about the church today. Two are very popular, and the third is better, okay? Now, the three things that, and you can jot this down if you want. Number one, we, often we think of church as a place I attend. A place I attend. This is the most common way we think about the church today. We reveal our thoughts when we ask these kinds of questions. Where is your church? Where is your church? And what time does it meet? What time is church? I may say, what time is church? You see? As if church is a certain, a a certain thing that happens in a certain place. Both of these assume that the church is something that happens in a particular place at a particular time, say at 9 o'clock on Sundays at 6811 East Cave Creek Road, where we are today. This creates a very negative impression of what the church is all about because this forces us to think of the church as an institution. We can become very institutionalized when we think of the church as something that happens in a holy building at a holy time. And so a lot of what we do in churches is designed to simply protect and to perpetuate the institution, you see? 
This is why there's so much emphasis, and forgive me for saying this, but it's just the truth, friends. There's so much emphasis on the three great B's of church. Bodies, buildings, and bucks, right? That's how we identify success. How many bodies show up? What's our attendance? How many people come to a meeting, you see? How much money do they give, and what kinds of buildings do we provide for them? You see, these, these give to us a sense that church is something that happens in a place at a certain time, and the purpose of the people is to keep the programs going, say, for example. Well, is it any wonder that people are kind of fed up with institutionalized church? Church is all about itself, all about getting people in its doors, all about getting people to sign out to its programs, all about itself. Who wants to feel that their purpose in life is merely to, as some have said, show up, shut up, and pay up, right? Who wants to go to church where that's kind of what the feeling is? Just show up, shut up, and pay up. No, God didn't intend, intend for the church to be merely a place that we attend. Well, secondly, people often think church is a product that I consume. A product that I consume. This may be a particularly American way of thinking about the church. You see, our free enterprise system seems to have infected the way we think about church. And so we churches compete with one another to provide the best programs we can to our constituencies, right? We, we might call this the church as a vending machine. The church is sort of a vending machine filled with products that we pick and choose and take. So we look for the best music program, the best children's program, the best youth program, the best preaching. Whatever we think best meets our need. And we don't find it where we are. We go somewhere new, you see. Church is a vending machine. The church is a product that I consume. You see, whereas in the first case, we can get caught up in the church as an institution that I want to preserve. In the second place, uh, we can see the church more as a product that I'm trying to promote, you know. So without meaning to, we communicate a message to people which says, it's all about you. We're here to meet your needs. Come and see what we can provide for you. It's all about you, 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 you. And then we wonder why Christians are always saying, me, me, me. Why they get to be selfish? Because we've taught them that the church is all about what we can provide for them, you know. These two ways of thinking about the church are not healthy, healthy and helpful for us. We want to think of it in a different way. We don't want to think about the church as an institution to preserve or as a product to consume. But our desire is that the, the New Testament teaches us that the word ecclesia calls, it speaks about this, church as a people who are called, a people who are called. You see, it's not about us. It's about God. God is doing something in the world. He is seeking to turn the world upside right. And he's calling men and women and boys and girls to join him in, in that venture. He's gathering people to himself and sending them as his representatives in the world. He is seeking to use the church, the ecclesia, as his instrument to bring about positive change in the world. The church is not about a, an institution which serves its own ends, nor a, nor a, a vending machine which just go, is here to make your life great, but it's about a, a, a movement, a, 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 a call for change in the world, trying to renew and restore and bring peace and hope and love and goodness to our world. So we want to see church as a, an institution or as an uh, uh, as a vending machine, but rather church as a movement. You see, our, um, 
so our purpose is to propel the movement of God, the movement which God has always been initiating from the very beginning. Our vision, God's vision, is cosmic. We're here to effect positive change in the world. Why do we gather? We gather because God has called us to Himself, brought us to one another, and then He wants to send us back into the place where we work as instruments of hope and change in a world. We're here to serve not just you, but the purposes of God in helping you become the person God meant for you to become. That's why we call ourselves Ecclesia. In truth, it's not a name we have chosen, but rather a name we have been given. You see, my daughter didn't choose her name, and we don't really choose our name. We're the ecclesia of God. We belong to Him. We are a people, and this is important to get, we are a people called to faith in the gospel of Christ, gathered in love as the community of Christ, and sent with hope on the mission of Christ. Let me say that again. As a church, this church is, is a church called to faith in the gospel of Christ, gathered in love as the community of Christ, and sent with hope on the mission of Christ. That's what we're all about. So before we move on to the second question, I'd like to offer you a challenge. If we continue to, uh, if we continue to operate church like we did a generation or so ago, our culture will have left us behind just as it did Western Europe. We can no longer merely assume to perpetuate the institution of the church or flippantly promote its programs. No, Christianity is no longer the dominant mess faith of our day. Pluralism is. We need to recapture Christianity as a movement, not a museum. Or else we will be, in the, rather, in the words of that famous novel, we'll be left behind. You see, we're not here to pr promote a brand new kind of institutional church, or, nor are we willing to trivialize the gospel with trinkets and tips and techniques. We're a movement, not a monument. Let's get moving. Will you join me? This is a community around here that needs to hear the good news about Jesus. Let's make that happen. So that's the first question. The second question is, what do we mean by a community of faith love, and hope. Those three words are right there at the beginning of this text that Ashley read for you. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope are important themes in the Bible. In fact, many of you have, are probably familiar with the words of the love chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, and now abide faith, love, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But in various books of the Bible, we see these triune virtues of faith and love and hope. Um, these are taught clearly in the Scripture, but it's my conviction that these three virtues, and this is important, I hope you can uh, think about this, these three virtues correspond to some deeply held human convictions and needs, needs all of us share, no matter what our background, our education, or even our religious perspective. What are those three things? Well, every human being wants three things. They want something to believe. They want somewhere to belong. They want someone to become. They want to believe and belong and become, or to put it another way. Every human being desperately wants their lives to be filled with meaning, with intimacy, and with purpose. These three things, meaning and intimacy and purpose, or believing, belonging, and becoming, correspond to the very three virtues we're talking about, faith and love and hope. 
So let me put these thoughts into three very simple statements. Number one, as a community of faith, we want to address the deeply felt human longings to find meaning in life and to offer something to believe. Everybody's got to believe in something. Every human being is on a quest for meaning. What is the meaning of my life? What can I deeply believe? Why am I here? Now, some people believe in human reason, but, you know, modern philosophy has ultimately led us to question even the uh, infallibility of human reason. Others believe in science, but Science itself has proven, proven to be a rather elusive dance partner. You know, with the advent of string theory, quarks, and quantum mechanics, there seems to be a lot more chaos in the universe than Newton or Einstein ever could have imagined. Don't ask me what any of those things mean, you know, quarks, and I just, I can't even fathom that. But uh, the world's a lot more unconventional than we thought even 100 years ago. What do you believe? Everyone believes in something. We could list many alternative belief systems, religious systems or philosophical systems or psychological systems or scientific systems, all kinds of belief systems, but they're all beliefs of one sort or another, statements of faith about what is true in the world. I remember that moment when I sat in high school geometry, and the very first day she said, we have to begin with some assumptions. You know, it's all about proving things, right? In geometry, don't ask me to talk about geometry because I learned enough to pass the test and that was it. But I remember, you know, and there, there were those basic things we have to assume. Some of you could tell me a number is a real thing or one and one, you know, these things. They're obvious. But the point she was making, Mrs. Manning, was that before you can get anywhere, you had to accept certain things on faith. Well, that's the true about Christianity as well. Christians accept certain things on faith. We have a deep faith in Jesus, as it says in this verse, uh, that we have faith in Christ Jesus. You see, Christians have a belief system which is based on an event in history. Here it is. We believe that at a certain point in time, God, who was separate from the universe, came into human history and clothed himself in the very humanity that he had created. We believe this God-man named Jesus was unique in all of history, that he lived among us as a servant, showing us a new way to live, and was cruelly beaten and crucified by the people he came to rescue. We believe that this God-man was buried and three days later was physically raised from the dead, and that this resurrected Jesus is today king and ruler of the universe, which he will one day claim and remake as his very own. And we believe that this resurrected Jesus offers to remake and renew our own lives as we place our complete confidence and faith in him. And we believe that this fact fundamentally changes the way we view ourselves and our world and our future as a people. Everything grows out of that belief. This is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. This is the message which we offer to everyone looking for something that they can place their confidence in. If you're looking for something to believe in, everyone is. May I offer to you, believe in Jesus, a true source of meaning. May I recommend to you this gospel of Jesus. You can believe in the gospel of Jesus. So we're called as a community of faith. Number two, as a community of love, we can say it this way. Ecclesia addresses the deeply felt human longing for intimacy, to have somewhere to belong. Everybody's got to belong somewhere. We have a universal need to love and to be loved. It's true in every culture, in every time period, among all human people groups. Even in the original creation, God said, 
after he'd created a perfect creation, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, despite this crazy, because we don't get along with each other very well, do we? But we need one another. We're only truly human when we have a relationship with one another. Yet many of us feel disconnected and frustrated. Our lives are strewn with failed relationships and broken promises and hurt feelings. Deep down, we feel a deep sense of loneliness. So we seek intimacy. Everybody does, not just people who want to be Christians. Everybody seeks it in all kinds of ways with various degrees of success but mostly with mixed results. Sometimes we compromise our values for the sake of others' acceptance. We want to love, but sometimes we're afraid. We want to, be, we want to care for people, but we're afraid of being hurt. You see, we crave intimacy and we fear it both at the same time. Where can I escape this trend? Where can I be accepted just for myself? Where's the place where I can be honest about my failures, my fears, my struggles without being pushed away? Is there a place like that? Yes, there is. This is God's vision for the ecclesia, for the people he has called to himself. He wants them to be united as a community of love. Notice what it says here in our text, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard about your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. You see, the church is meant to be a unique community in the world, a place where everyone is loved, everyone is valued, everyone is accepted, everyone is forgiven. For our love and acceptance and value and forgiveness is not just something we offer to others, but it's something we have received from Jesus. You see, Jesus has loved us unconditionally, so we love others that way. Jesus has accepted us, so we accept others. Jesus has forgiven us fully and freely, so we offer that forgiveness to others. Yes, we fall short, but that vision continually reminds us we're called to be a community of love. And the third thing is this, as a community of hope, we address the deeply felt human longing for a purpose, to have someone to become. You see, uh, it, just like it was with the previous two, it is with hope. Hope expresses our fundamental human desire for a purpose, for a future, for a destiny, for something to do, for someone to become, for a future orientation, for something important ahead of us. Unfortunately, much of our culture has become a culture of despair. We've filled our lives with gadgets, but not with much fundamental purpose for living. Is this life all there is? Is there anything that really matters in the long run? Or is the universe simply a slowly winding down clock with no real future? Everybody asks that question. But is there something important about the future? Well, Christianity teaches us, yes, that there is. There's something really important. God has, uh, God has uh, come to the, brought the future into the present through Jesus Christ. Our message is uniquely hopeful, for our vision of the future is grounded in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why our text says, we have heard of your faith in the life of Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And if you hang around here long enough, you'll see that we see that Christian hope is not just a, a, a hope for a disembodied state in the future, but rather a resurrected body like Jesus in a resurrected and renewed and restored earth. And what we do in this life really matters. So as a community of hope, we seek to live like the future in the present. We don't escape the world, try to get away from it. No, we are hopeful, active, engaged in the problems of our world and the possibilities of our world. Well, my time is basically gone. So what then is the short answer to the questions we've been considering? Here it is. We call ourselves Ecclesia because we're not interested in simply creating another place to go to church or an alternative set of products for Christians can, to consume. 
Instead, we believe that Cave Creek needs a community of people who realize that God has called them to faith in the gospel of Christ, that God has gathered them in love as the community of Christ, and that God has sent them with hope on the mission of Christ, serving our world like Jesus served, suffering for our world like Jesus suffered. That's a great vision. It touches the deepest needs of our hearts. It lets me know that there is something I can believe. I can believe in Jesus. There is somewhere I can belong. I can belong to the family of Jesus. There is something that I can become. I can become a fully alive follower of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of vision that gives me excitement, and perhaps it gives you excitement too. Maybe you want to learn more what it means to become a person of faith, so you have convictions deep in Christ, a person of love and a person of hope. If so, we'd be thrilled to welcome you to our family as we move forward. Or perhaps you're just in the exploratory phase of Christian experience. You're not sure where you stand, but you find a strange resonance in your heart when you hear me talk about faith and love and hope and, and how it connects to our human cravings for meaning and intimacy and purpose. If so, we welcome you. You don't have to sign on to be a part of what we're doing. Just hang out, you see. And finally, if you're already an active part of our church community, I invite you to lay hold of this vision, to renew our resolve, to be united together as a community of faith and love and hope. Our community needs to see us become that kind of place, a place called to faith in the gospel of Christ, gathered in love as the community of Christ, and sent with hope on the mission of Christ. We'd love to have you join us in that vision. May God bless you. Let's have prayers. We close. Father, we are just really grateful for this vision that helps us see that the church is just not about a building or a program, but it's about a people who are called and gathered and sent. Each one of us, Father, I believe, has the opportunity to respond to you as the God who calls us, who gathers us, and who sends us. May we respond to you, and maybe there's even some here today who say, Lord, I didn't realize this. I want to be a follower of Jesus. May they be encouraged to talk to someone and find out how more how about they can do that. Father, we commit ourselves in this time to you, and we thank you for the opportunity as we close to consider the Lord's table. We consecrate it to you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.